Welcome to a radical discussion of independence, free will, liberty, and the left-hand path. This is Damon Ossifer with your host, Paul Frederick. Welcome to Saturnian Sessions, where we get into the dark, groovy vibes that seep into the psyche on a Saturday night. And tonight, my guest is Cygnus Onyx Flame. That is my brother, Lloyd Keane, hailing from Ottawa, Ontario, with a new album forthcoming. Hi, Lloyd. Welcome back. Thanks, Paul. It's great to be here again. Great to have you back, man. So let's 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 start with you've got a new album coming out with Cygnus Onyx Flame. I think when you were on the show before, and this was a little while back, um, we were highlighting um, a different project of yours um, that was more of a band type thing, and and uh, now you're doing a solo type thing, and that's Cygnus Onyx Flame. So um, so tell us what that's all about. Uh, yeah, the band uh, Obsidian Will is a trio, um, and before the band started in about 2013, I'd been doing playing around with GarageBand and layering sounds, trying to get the idea of things are in my head, how can I translate that into sound uh, bites and pieces, and I've been working with um, uh, Photoshop at the time, and Photoshop uses layers, so I was thinking, well, how can I how can I do that with sound? I have no musical background really. So it was more of, you know, trying to get that emotive component to it. Um, and so I would did that for about three years or so obsidian will started and I kind of put that off to the side. Um, and what had ended up happening was I just decided, as you know, working with bands, you have an idea you may want to translate it somehow, but you give it to two other people and they have a different interpretation. And that's fine for the band, but not so much for necessarily representing the art as you want to represent it. Um, and so Cygnus Onyx Flame combines a lot of my previous play in a little more serious way. Um, and it's it's completely up to me what I do with it. So it's a solo project to that to that degree. Cool. So what's the what's the vibe of it? What's the vision of Cygnus Onyx Flame? Um, dark ambient, I guess. Um, but I do, I'm trying to also, I'm not trying to turn my back on, on, you know, drum machines and that kind of thing. But if I do anything with, uh, uh, percussion, it's usually very low BPM, like maybe 70 or, you know, 65, somewhere around there. So it's kind of loungy chill, uh, but then also very dark and, um, and brooding, uh, spacey, that kind of thing. So this, I have several EP releases out on my Bandcamp page, and this one will be the first time where I've actually tried to create a, a shell, I guess, where I have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Um, the beginning and end will always be similar, almost identical, I would say, but it leaves some place for improv, whereas before I would have just improvised whatever, like I would have set up my stuff and played. Uh, so this is my attempt to get a little more structure without locking into, you know, a song always sounding identical every time I play it. And this is meant primarily for playing live. So once I get this down, it'll be uh, disciplined for me to continue with that. So um, I, I want to ask, is is there's a, a previous album that you released with um, COF, that was called Do Not Mourn for Juliana. Is that the most recent one? Uh, no, um, Transmissions from the Void is the most recent one. Okay. Yeah. So I, I, I detected in, in some of those, and I think Transmissions from the Void also, um, well, uh, but specifically on Juliana, I, I noticed there's more beats, there's more rhythms, there's more intensive, like like voice sampling, you know, and stuff like that. Um, is that sort of a new a new um, 
a new dimension that you're that you're developing with the work? Yeah, I mean, anything I put out um, is is a serious form of play. So what I'm trying to understand is how can I use samples? And um, it's easy enough, sorry, not easy, but it's easier to do when you're sitting at your computer and you can, you know, futz around. But if you're doing it live on stage, it's something different. So I'm always trying to keep an eye open for how would I do this live? So um, I don't think there'll be any samples in in the, the new one that'll be released, but the past ones were... There's a way of using samples which are part of the narrative. So not so much about lyrics, but more about adding to the tone or, or you know, trying to get across some aspect of the artistic vision uh, through um, samples from movies or having you know very wonderful friends who volunteer to help, um, you know, that kind of thing. So it's definitely something I'm not an expert in. I'm definitely working towards understanding that better and uh, probably use it more uh, in the future. Well, it's cool. I, I, I really like it. I, I think it adds like a new dimension to it. So I, I, I really dig it. I enjoy it. I like the direction that, that things are going in. Um, so the new album is Songs for a Cosmonaut. Mm. So tell us what that's all about. <laughs> oh, is that all? <laughs> <laughs> um so anything that I make, um, so I have, the, I have the two sites. I have a SoundCloud, which is essentially just play and, and goofing around and putting some ideas out. And the Bandcamp ones are more serious, focused um, EPs. And so I always have an idea or a concept that I'm trying to communicate. And I don't have a great deal of musical background. So uh, everything I do is very, very simple. But that's how I, I enjoy listening to very simple music and, and I enjoy playing it. So this one, the idea was sort of this notion of a cosmonaut. Um, anything to do with space for me, external space is essentially a metaphor for initiatory process or, or the inner universe or the, you know, turning inward. And so this is about each of the songs in the EP are going to represent some aspect of the initiatory um, uh, quest or journey, if you want to talk about that, yeah. So can you talk about, I mean, you know, you and I both have some experience with the esoteric order of Beelzebub, of the Temple of Set, um, the concept of cosmonaut, when you, when, the way that you're uh, utilizing that term, are you thinking specifically of like Russian space program or is there something more, is there something more to it? The, I, there's something more to it. Uh, essentially, um, I guess whether it was uh, started in complete seriousness or not, um, EOB, esoteric oriole Beelzebub, um, often refer to each other as cosmonauts. Um, I have always taken that as a very serious um, title uh, because it represents somebody who has the courage to explore in the unknown and has, and you know, a little bit bonkers enough to go out and do the stuff that most people wouldn't rather do. I mean, it's easier to sit on your couch and do nothing. Um, or, you know, consume television programs, but, you know, to get up, to go put yourself into a mind frame where you need to create and get that flame out there for people to see and experience, um, I think is really important. And that to me is what a cosmonaut does is goes into, goes inward, but then at the same time has to go outward, has to take out, uh, bring out what it is that we've created and put it out into the world. Um, so that to me, the song, Originally, I was going to call it Songs from a Cosmonaut, and then that seemed not so much pompous, but it was like, I'm really not doing this for somebody else. I'm doing it for myself. So in, in a way that the songs are for me, and in the process, maybe reciprocation can occur where uh, someone may hear it, be inspired to do their own thing. Usually what happens to me is my simple art inspires people that have greater skill and capacity, then they come back and make something awesome. And it's all, it's always great when someone says, "Oh, thank you so much for that inspiration." I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> it's like, I'm glad, glad you could do that. Um, so yeah, that, that's that's the idea. It has it has a dual meaning. The cosmonauts, me, but it's also anybody else out there who might be um, inspired to do something because of hearing that. Yeah. So so two things I want to add to that. One is as far as like craziness. Um, I think every all great innovators and entrepreneurs and artists are at least a little bit crazy, a little bit crazy. 
A little bit crazy is good. You got to have a little bit crazy in there, right? Um, so I I think that's a good thing. And to me, that that's always been kind of like wrapped up in the wrapped up in the uh, cosmonaut term, you know, as as EOB um, has used it. And and the other thing is that's really significant about what you said about for a cosmonaut, right? Versus from a cosmonaut, because first of all, it talks about it talks about what this offering can do for the person, right? It's get buy buy in from the person because really, when you're doing music, the the person who's going to ever ever listen to this or or, or buy the music or something is someone that you know you want to have you want them to have buy in into it, and and this came up um, on a on another project that you and I uh, had both worked on called the Red Planet Choir. Where the the vision the vision of the music was to make music for people who will who live on Mars one day, right? Yeah. So there was this just that 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 whole concept. Once you decide what the music is for, who the music is for, and you just have like a general like just some kind of idea about that, that helps provide direction and fire and and focus to actually actually create it. You know, because I think there's a lot of artists, there's a lot of musicians, would-be musicians, who don't think about the for, and all they think about is the from, right? Yeah. It's like that's the self-absorption, the the dangerous self self-absorption side of artistry. You know, the the Ziggy Ziggy sucked up into his mind, you know, aspect of it. Yeah. Well, and that's that's. I know a lot of really good musicians, accomplished musicians, who are quite happy you know, doing their scales and practicing in the basement and, and they're ridiculously advanced. And I don't begrudge that. I mean, that takes a lot of time and dedication, but I'm far more interested in communicating and putting it out there. So I would, I would rather be half-assed and putting that out there and then improving as you go. So, you know, the, the improving is slower, but it's more robust. At least that's how I see it. And, you know, I'm a, fairly terrible drummer but i love playing and the way i play because it's so simple in obsidian will it it suits the music that we play you know this kind of experimental doom ambient sort of thing and i've i've had you know drummers play i've seen drummers play our music and a lot of times it's you know they're playing like as if they were playing in another band okay well i'm going to play four four but i'm going to play a lot of fill and i'm going to do a I, 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 it takes a lot of effort to count in my head, so I'm not doing a lot of stuff. There's a lot of empty space, and I think empty space is, is, um, is where that magic can occur, you know. So for us, for Obsidian Will, at least the way I drum, um, I can only practice when we practice as a band. But when we play live, it's usually quite different from anything else that's up on the stage. Um, so, yeah, I find that really interesting. So, so how do you, so have you played live with, um, Cygnosonic's Flame? Uh, just one, I did one gig. Uh, it was actually quite interesting. I was, I was asked to play in between sets. So there were five, uh, four or five uh, different sets that were, people were playing. Um, and instead of putting on the house music, I was just doing ambient stuff in between, um, which I thought was, I would love to do that. In fact, I would love to do that all the time because, you're there and you're, you're, you're adding to the experience of the people that are there, but at the same time, you're not necessarily center stage. You're off to the side. And, you know, and it, I really want people to, uh, project or, or to, uh, use or experience what I create, uh, with their own visions, you know, their own, their own imagery in their mind, um, to allow that to just go wherever it needs to go rather than imposing on somebody what they should see or, or, uh, you know, experience when they hear it. Um, so yeah, no, I, I love that. In fact, I, I latched on one of my synthesizers and I went off the stage and some, some guitarist said, Oh, it must be nice to just leave your instrument playing. <laughs> well, you could do the same damn thing with your guitar. <laughs> so, you know, just, just put on the reverb and sit down and go, go walk away. But yeah, it was uh, it was a different feeling. That's for sure. Yeah, I you know I feel that there there has to be like that interaction for me. There has to be that interaction and that and that feedback, 
you know that audience participation that there has to be some kind of like loop like going on um at least that's what's really extraordinary about it that's what's awesome about it that's what's awesome about doing a live show is that you have this exchange with this group of group of people like a bunch of people a bunch of individuals and maybe you have nothing particularly in common with them outside of this but just the the power of of music and the rhythm and the vibrations and the and the frequencies and everything and the imagery of it it binds everyone together and everyone uh connects with it everyone connects for a moment and that's what i think is like amazing about it um you know the the whole like you know just leaving noise on stage and walking off stage just to make a point you know the, the, uh, which is a total, you know, I mean, it's, it's like the total deconstructionist, like, you know, thing. And, you know, you know, this is like a, this is like a Boyd Rice, you know, Boyd Rice would still do something like this. Right. And it's like, you know, I, I get it and everything, but really whoever did that the first time, which I don't know, was maybe Throbbing Gristle, like in, you know, 1978 did that for the first time. Well, they did it. They did it. They made the point. They made the point. There's not really a big market for that. Right. Because, again, the question of who, right? I mean, so maybe they're, like, that's the whole point of that is, like, destroying the question of, like, who the music is for. And they want to, like, destroy that to, like, make some kind of point about it. Um, so I get it, you know, if you need to make a point about it. But for me, doing music live, um, that's what it's about. It's about connecting. And, and, and when it works, you know, when it works out, like, if people, you know, people show up, you know. And, yeah, if they show up. Right, if people show up. <laughs> then it's a wonderful thing. And, you know, that's the thing. When you go through all this trouble to do a show, even like a really small show, there's going to be at least two people there. You know, there's at least three people. And and sometimes those are the best. Sometimes that could be great, you know. It could be an awesome, like, you know, intimate soiree. It's the other bands. It's like, oh, thanks for coming. Right. Sometimes it's just the other bands. Yeah. So is that – so so – so what kind of uh, so what kind of shows have you experienced doing that? What what what's your most memorable show? Like any band, any of the bands that you do, what's the most memorable show you've done? Oh, your favorite? It has. Oh, I wouldn't say this. My the most memorable was um, Obsidian. Will used to be a duo, so it was just me and the guitarist. And uh, our first out of city gig was about forty five minutes out of the city, and it was at this um, nudist colony. And it was uh, it was closing, I guess, at the time. So he goes, "Do you want to play?" And I'm like, "Fuck, I guess." <laughs> like, do we have to be naked? I mean, I'll do it, but <laughs> just I'd like to know this. At the so we get there, uh, everyone was clothed. But anyway, we set up. We set up. This was not our kind of thing. Like, this is not where we should have been playing. Um, but I, I respect that. It doesn't seem to be so much an issue anymore. Like, there's so many cross venue type you know, different types of music playing at one place. Anyhow, we sat down and for whatever reason, the guitarist, uh, something crapped out with the amp or the guitar, but I didn't, I couldn't really hear it. So I was trying my best to follow what the hell we were doing, but apparently they could hear the drums across the highway, but they couldn't hear any of the guitar. <laughs> and then when we returned, it was just this downpour. I couldn't see two feet in front of me. So it was a very interesting experience to be able to say that we kind of played this gig and almost died getting home. But other than that, it was outstanding. Well, so it was a downpour of rain yeah. while you were playing? No, no. This was on the way back. It was just oh, okay. a total shit show. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> but we did um, – we did um, – Anathema Books did a book launch, um, and we were invited to do. We were one of the the music. Um, uh, there was two bands playing, and it was interesting because it was a whole room full of uh, people who are sort of in, occult oriented or cl inclined. And while Obsidian Will isn't an occult band by any stretch, um, it was interesting to see that group of people rather than just the you know the sort of unfocused audience because you never know who's going to come in you know for the draw but these people were very spe specifically focused on the book launch and and more interested in that uh, um that sort of community and i i found that really kind of cool too that was a fun time no that's cool that sounds awesome so how did you um let's back up how did you get into doing music originally all right. Well, you did ask originally. 
So <laughs> my, my parents bought me a, a really crappy drum kit many moons ago when I was a kid. Uh, I was going to take lessons, but apparently they wanted me to learn piano first before they would teach me drums. So that didn't work. And uh, I ended up selling or giving my kit away to a person who could play. And he taught me, he's a jazz drummer now, he taught me how to play very basic rudimentary sort of drum uh, uh, playing. And I did that for a while. And then it just sort of went away. Like I didn't have drums. I didn't have a place to practice. Um, but I started uh, with a band of a colleague of mine at my other uh, job I had. And that was um, Prophets of Gen Z. So that was like, if you could imagine taking Johnny Cash and the Cramps and I like, just mm. fusing them into some bizarre, weird, fucking oh my god that sounds awesome i love it i love it already i'm a fan live a few times um but it went in 2013 obsidian will started and that's that was i mean that's been going since then um and that's been my serious well i mean as serious as a hobby sort of i mean we're not professional musicians so it's uh you know we keep at it practicing regularly so i've always listened to music um but i it's just recently where we're starting to play more seriously. In fact, it gets, it's at the point now where we're almost, we've all been talking a little bit about music theory. So now songs take twice as long to figure out. Cause we're like, wait, what are you playing? How do you, what is that now? <laughs> How do we transcribe that? <laughs> yeah. So, so then what, what kind of bands were you into like growing up? I think uh, one time we were talking about, um snfu right uh, snfu came up once when we were like hanging out and that's like an old that's like a hardcore band from um from canada and i, I don't know where, where are they from in canada oh shit i think i think edmonton but it might be bc anyways yes the west <laughs> right well they and and they were touring all through they were touring through the midwest you know in the 80s and i saw them you know living in nebraska um i saw them like like three times and, you know, met them and, you know, partied with them and stuff. And it's like, then you and I started talking about it, about SNFU. And I'm like, oh, wow. And immediately, you know, we were, we were already connected all the, over the, all of these other things like, you know, you know, Satan and, you know, black magic and, and stuff like that. And then that came up. I was like, oh, damn, SNFU. So I started thinking, wow, man, was Lloyd like going to hardcore hardcore shows and stuff like back in the day. So, so what kind of, what, what, what was your experience like growing up in, in, in Ottawa, right? You grew up there. Oh no, I, I grew up in Regina in Saskatchewan. It's a trap okay. in the middle of the country. Okay. So it's a, it's so a small town. Oh yeah. Uh, at this time, the city was about 210,000. So okay. yeah, not a, not tiny, but not a metropolitan center. Um, no, I, I think my, I learned like my parents, um, I listened to a lot of the Beatles when I was a kid. Uh, my mom was a huge, is a huge Elvis fan. My dad, Wilf Carter, you know, kind of the countryside. So that, that's the kind of thing I'd be listening to growing up. But I think one of my favorite memories, and this could be all made up now, but I, my first um, introduction to good metal was uh, we had this music appreciation thing in grade six where people would bring in an album. So somebody brought in Black Sabbath, Black Sabbath, oh and you know God. you put the yeah. album cover up, and then the bell starts ringing, and I was like, "What the fuck is going on here?" <laughs> and it just completely, you know, rips your soul apart. You're into this. Ah. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> so, so I was always a huge Maiden fan because of the storytelling, and you know, yeah. I just love that. I'd listen to Kiss, but then it'd be like a lot of sex stuff that I like. I don't understand why this is a thing, but yeah, obviously yeah. I can talk about the Trooper, and that's way cooler. <laughs> no, that's a, that's like most of who is into Kiss is like didn't understand that. I mean, Kiss was Kiss's biggest fan base was ten to uh, you know twelve year old boys, and I was like eight or seven or eight or something when Kiss was going on, and it's like I didn't get it. But the older kids were like, "Yeah, Kiss," and so I'd be like, "Yeah." kiss you know and then the dolls they came out with the dolls and everything you know i'm sorry I, I, that's a side that's a, I, I hijacked that whole thing you were talking about your experience with music well, no that's it's all this it's all the same no but i mean so so i was always into metal um uh, merciful fate you know i would get into that like what who, who is this insane vocalist like what is going on here but i remember listening to at war with satan and i'd be listening to venom but my brain would go wait 
Are you at war with, as in on the side of, or at with, as against? This is very, I don't understand what we're at, what's going on here. So uh, that that would be the sort of the metal side, the clash and, um, you know, DOA and uh, the exploited. So a lot of the hardcore stuff, ska I was really into for quite a while, you know, the specials and the selector and that kind of thing. Um, but it wasn't until connected, I guess, more in retrospect now, looking back, uh, it was Skinny Puppy that really blew me uh, out of the water for very weird industrial electronica. Oh, yeah. And I remember buying um, uh, God the Perpetual Intercourse, no, Mind the Perpetual Intercourse. And I listened to the first two songs and I said, this is shit. And I brought it over to my friend's house. Then he called me back maybe the next day or whatever and says, dude, you got to come listen to this. I'm like, okay. And then I start. I got past it. Like you have to, it's like black metal. You kind of have to immerse yourself in it. You can't try to figure it out. And I listened to that, you know, God's gift maggot. I was just like, what? Okay. This is just awesome. <laughs> so, but yeah, there's, it's, that's kind of the the trajectory. But lately, though, because I've been trying to learn a little bit of music theory and piano and stuff, you know, Thelonious Monk and Art Tatum, and I'm trying to understand jazz and the history of jazz. And, uh, you know, I'll never play it, but I'm starting to get an ear for it. Like, I can feel it way more than I could before. So I think I've gone, there's not a heck of a lot of music that I can't listen to. I may not listen to a lot of it or for extended periods of time, but yeah, no, that's really interesting. Um, I had um, Spike the Percussionist on the show recently, and that, that episode hasn't dropped yet, but he's a he's a drummer. He plays in a bunch of bands uh, here in Houston. Um, he's just a real – he's an incredible drummer. Um, but he also does drone, right? He has a similar thing, the similar like path where he's like gone through drone and just like listening to your story and everything as a percussionist, like coming into this. I see all these um, – similarities um in the process and there's also like interest in you know uh black magic and chaos magic that um emerges all out of all of this um and you know i can't help but but no you mentioned um the exploited and i used to know the the guitarist for the exploited lived in and see you might know this already and when i lived in kenosha wisconsin um in the, the electric hellfire club days, um, the guitarist for the, the, see the exploited, they liked Kenosha and they had come and played there a few times. Right. And they made really, they made friends with all of the, the little punk scene there. There's this little punk scene there. Um, what did they call themselves? They were like the, the uptown punks. And there's a punk band called, uh, beautiful Bert and the luscious ones. And they were all like really tight with the exploited. And so the guitarist for the exploited had moved to Kenosha with the drummer. I think it was the drummer for UK subs. I think it's like who used to be in UK subs and they started a new band. They were starting a new band there called Billy goat. And then that Billy goat band went on and toured and stuff and ended up like, like, you know, decades, decades later, I'm living in like, in, in Houston, Texas, and Billy Goat like comes through town. I'm like, that's so weird. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny though. You should when you mentioned the the other drummer. Um, that's how I started getting into synthesizers. Was we were we were sort of tailing into like the doom stuff we like to do, but we don't vocalize like a doom band. So like we don't have the growl or that. So we don't really we can't we don't want to sell ourselves as doom when we're not going to be a doom experience. But we, we were sort of going into the ambient side. So we have the we have the electric violin and cello, and we have the electric guitar through a lot of distortion. And I thought, well, the last thing we need is me going like this on the cymbals or chimes or something. Like, I'm, I'm done. I can't. There's nothing else I, I know how to do. So uh, I started researching synthesizers for whatever reason. And, um, you know, I saw that they weren't initially meant to be a, mu a musical instrument it was more for sound effects or strange ambient sounds and special effects so i thought well shit that's exactly what i need something that's noisy and spooky so you know i did some more research bought a monophonic synth and uh then you start talking to people who are other keyboardists and you know and someone here in the, in the city said you know you can put that through a guitar pedal right i'm like you can do what now Whoa, <laughs> <And> <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck does 
not work. So, uh, yeah, so, I mean, that's, and then the slippery slope, I'll never get anything that's super expensive because I just don't, I mean, I, I don't have the time put in and I don't really have, like, I'm not a modular synth guy. I don't have the space for that or the patience, but I, I do have, what I have now works well for my own stuff, but it can also work with Obsidian Will. So I can, I can take bits and pieces of it, you know, this pedal and that synth or, you know, change it up a bit. So that led me, because I was an acoustic drummer uh, and we were trying to do ambient things with electronics, I was like, well, that doesn't leave me a lot. But apparently it's not uncommon for drummers to be the, the synth player or the, or the keyboardist. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I learned. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it, it doesn't surprise me. Um, and I had a similar experience with like pedals too. And, you know, this is when I was like playing, I was learning to play guitar. I just kind of like launched, launched away from like taking lessons and I was trying to like play guitar and I wanted to make it sound more like, you know, more like the Bauhaus, you know, I was into the Bauhaus and Joy Division and the post-punk thing was what I was like trying to, um, what I was really into at the time. And, um, I saw, I went and visited some guy and he was like playing guitar and he had a, uh, the boss digital delay pedal you know what i'm talking about right it's a classic pedal this pedal is like more important than the fucking telephone you know as far as like the evolution of like music i think but i saw him like you know click that you know it's white it's the blue and white pedal right and i saw this guy you know he's strumming and clicking it and and i saw you know how he was using the delay and i was like Oh, that blew my mind. All of a sudden, that explained all of these sounds that I had heard before, you know? Um, because there's something like uh, Bauhaus, uh, Press the Ejection, Give Me the Tape, the live album. It's just like, just filled with delay, you know? It's like, that's that's how he gets that guitar sound, you know? It's like all this delay. And suddenly, I realized I could do that. And I'm like, wow. So I did it with, so I got that, you know, I saved up my money. I got that that pedal. And then shortly after that, I realized, oh, you can put vocals through this. Whoa. <laughs> and then you start thinking, what else could I put through this? <laughs> and there you have it. Drone, drone was born. Well, in my mind, drone was born. But right, I mean, there you go. You've got it. And um, I don't know if I ever told you, I actually did a, a, a uh, drone industrial like kind of like project. And this had to be like 1987 or 88. Um, I was mostly playing in a punk rock band called Red Max at the time, but I did a side a side thing with this friend of mine, uh, Bob Jensen, and and it was called Techno Shock. And basically, he just found a bunch of samples. He had a four tra- old four track recorder, and so he just had a bunch of samples on the four track recorder and just put some like stupid noise on it. And I'm like, dude, let's run this through the um, run this through my digital delay pedal and my distortion pedal. <laughs> There you go. We got to we got to we got to go it on, you know. <laughs> See, and that's the thing. I hate delay. I reverb is so I bought I bought, you know, a, a simple multi stomp and it was okay, but every video I kept seeing with the Eventide Space, so it was like I need that pedal, but it's like $600 here. So I was like I can't afford that stupid. But somehow <laughs> I managed to buy three pedals that cost more than that. And I'm like fuck this. So I sell them at a loss, buy the stupid space, and now it's just like why didn't I just start this way? <laughs> I always buy the delay. And I'm like, why do I keep doing this to myself? It's reverb I need. I have delay. It's fine. I run my drum machine through uh, Eventide Time Factor. So I have those. Those are amazing. And you can always tell synth people, it's either Strymon or Eventide, but the synth people are just, you got to put it through your reverb. I'm like, yes, listen to the interwebs. They know what's going on. <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. Delay. <laughs> yeah, delay. It's like an amazing thing. So you know what someone really needs to do is start making delay pedals that have, and musical gear in general, incorporating um, precious metals and, and jewelry, like diamond encrusted, like bling them out and stuff, because that way they'll retain their value. I mean, you're going to pay more for that pedal, but... If you when you go to resell it, it's going to retain its value. You're going to make your money back on it, you know. So it'll be a it'll be an investment that way. And then you know people like this, like us, that are like just addicted to gear, yeah. will have a fighting chance. No, we won't, because then we'll be buying substandard pedals with lots of bling. But that's not helpful. All right. <laughs> Fine. Shoot me down. <laughs> well, you know, make some kind of you know sigil pedals. 
but that's that's the thing like i don't the people that create these things like synthesizers or or pedals like that that are um if not engineers are at least electronically um uh you know very good at doing that sort of sitting down and putting the components together you could do some pretty crazy shit like i could imagine if you had a you know a black magician who was also good at putting together electronics like that, I mean, if you you could almost create an entire interesting music project from beginning to end, that all of it is you know this immersive, subjective, magical tool. But I'm not that person, so. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's another way of like thinking about it. Another way of thinking about music is creating things for musicians rather than creating things for it's like it goes back to that question of who is this for right what is this creation like for and and music i mean musicianship has is something that is just like ex exploded right and you know i mean back in the day when you hear like you know, when you hear Ozzy Osbourne telling stories about how he got into music and he's like, oh, well, they like the Beatles, you know, and it's like, that's it. That's everyone's story is like there was like one band, the Beatles, right? If you lived in England, yeah, you know, there's like more than that. But basically the ability to, you know, at, at the time that all that was happening and it's like, and I'm sure there's all these weird economic, you know, cultural factors that go into this suddenly like ordinary people could get more and more people were able to get like a kid's able to get a guitar. Whereas like 20, 30 years ago, getting a guitar is a big fucking deal. Right. Like, you know, um, you listen to like the, like the Robert Johnson story, you know, or something like that. It's like he, he managed to get one, one guitar, right. That's what he had. He had one fucking guitar and, and one acoustic guitar and that's it. That's all he had. And he used that with that, one thing he did everything from there and it was amazing that he did it i mean he had all these all his friends and family that had no chance they're ever going to get a guitar right so that's like changed radically like when you get into like the post-war you know post-war world uh it's more and more common so it's like instrumentation is out there so there's basically and and now we're at the point where it's just like every just about every kid every boy like gets a guitar at one point and has some kind of like experience with it you know, um, and I don't know what the percentages are, but it's got to be pretty, you know, significant. So there's really this whole culture that's just about music, right? That's just about wants to do it. So, um, so that's another way of looking at the whole approach to doing music is like, who are you making this for? Well, maybe this is for musicians rather than mm -hmm. just fans, you know? Yeah, no. I mean, if you look at the Sears catalog, I mean, aside from the um, the lingerie part, there was always, you know, an introductory drum kit, a, a guitar, electric guitar and a bass guitar. I mean, I can remember that even as a kid. So it was always back in the day, people, you didn't have the Internet. So you had to order things through the catalog. Um, but I mean, that was, that was always the, that was always there. It was like, Oh, I'd like to learn that. But then it's like, no, then you have to practice you have to, you know, sit down and suffer through this. And, uh, and so that, yeah, that suffering part of it, I think is a huge, whether it's financial suffering in the sense of Robert Johnson having to, you know, coming, coming up with that ability to get that guitar. I mean, that becomes, um, you know, that's a magical tool at that point. And so that's coming up with the money for it, coming up for the time, coming up with the ideas. You know, I again, a lot of people way better than I am at a whole lot of things can play 15 different, you know, songs or sight read flawlessly, but they're not composing. I remember working with a first degree once who was talking about, you know, he played piano and could do all this stuff. And I said, well, have you ever composed something for yourself? And he said, no. And I'm like, well, there you go. You got your assignment. <laughs> go do something, <laughs> you know. So it's it's got to be it's got to be that um, that inner drive to. For me, it has to be that inner drive to to reflect what's going on uh, within within me. And I think you and um, uh, Toby had talked about that as well in in that about putting it out there so you can see see it yourself, like externally, but then also starting to build up people around you that can give you feedback and inter engage with you about that. And I, I think that's really vital. No, I think it's really true. So, um, you know, we like to say that, you know, all the nowadays, all the great uh, left-hand path magicians are also left-hand path 
musicians because it's almost like like i said it's creeping over into this it's it's almost like a lifestyle thing so do you have you ever felt that um that you have an imperative that you need to do music because it's just something that you need to do like your head will explode if you don't do it like it like it doesn't even matter like you could even like take the question of who's going to hear this or who this is for and say ah, it doesn't even matter i need to do it so in a way it's for me almost like a therapeutic type thing yeah i would say i would say music is the current iteration of that exploding experience um it can be visual art where I would immerse myself in painting or I, I also do lino cuts. So I love doing that. So there has to be some creative outlet right now, though, I see music as a, as a retirement uh, discipline. You know, I've, I have just started to look at music theory. So I have the rest of my life to look at that. I am just learning how to play some piano. So I have the rest of my life to improve on that. So I, I, I do see music currently as that thing, which I need to do. There always has to be a thing. And I suspect this will probably be it for a very long time. So you're playing piano. Well, I have a, I have an electric piano. Uh, so I just, I mean, I'm just doing like scales and practicing and, and uh, like not actually reading songs or, or playing songs, but it's mostly just um, to move my fingers. I mean, when I'm doing synths, that's what I love about synthesizers. You just hold the damn thing down, latch it, right. you're good. You don't need to worry about this stuff. But the the piano, I can spend hours. Let me let me rephrase that. I can spend many dozens of minutes um, sitting at the electric piano, just noodling around. I love it, and I suspect it's the same with anybody who's playing guitar too. You know, you can just noodle around. Um, so they don't really translate for me. Like what I if I come up with something like you know DF. E, C or something, if I'm playing that or even in chords, that doesn't translate to my synth because I'm going through a bunch of distortion and pedals. So even if I find something on the piano, it's not necessarily going to translate into what is, I would be hearing if I was playing through my synthesizer. So I just view them as two different outlets, but they sort of build on each other. Um, the piano, playing piano, um, introduced me to understanding like jazz, jazz pianists or, you know, that sort of stuff. It's like, oh, now I understand why they sounded so annoying before because I didn't understand what they were doing. I can't do what they're doing, but I appreciate what's going on now. And that makes me pay more attention to what, what the musician is doing. Yeah. No, that's it. So you just reminded me, no, that's the other thing that came up when I was like talking to Spike. We ended up talking about jazz and we ended up talking about, um, you know he he knows jazz a lot better than me. He knows all the ba all these great jazz drummers, and he he gave me a lot of great stuff on it. But um, you know, for me, like I I go back to like you know Thelonious Monk. I think he's like the he's he's the Magus of jazz, right? Yeah. I mean, just I mean, just total total magic. And it's like I you know as just with my my small monkey brain, you know, listening to him like play that, I'm like, what what what? How does that work? How does that work? But it but it works, right? Because I mean, someone who doesn't know how to play the piano and goes up and starts going, blim, 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 you know right away that this is like you know just stop that, you know, it's horrible. Don't do that. Um, but he just has this amazing ability, and to me, it's and it, and it's one time period. It's this time period of the '60s, and that's it for jazz. And there's you know. There's Thelonious Monk and there's Miles Davis and there's John Coltrane and I don't know, maybe a couple of others that I that I can't think of right now. And that's it. And it's like other jazz, you know, I, I to me it's like there's jazz influences and things, but there's no other like jazz thing that has just completely sucked me into it. But that whole time period is just extraordinary. And it's like no one can replicate it. No one can ever do that again, right? It just it happened and it's and it has to do not just with the the musicians but it has to do with the recording technology at the time, the access that these people had to recording technology and record labels and stuff to like, you know, create durable media for it. All these like factors like converge together to create like this, this one thing that is just absolutely amazing and, and magical. Well, there's um, the both Thelonious Monk and Art Tatum, a few of the records that I have, 
um, the live ones. You, I love because where the mics are, you can hear them going off and this, like there's just, they're vocalizing as they're going on. And right, it's just, right. this, you can tell they're, they're so utterly immersed in what they're doing. Um, and I, I love that. Like when, when I play live when, with the band, I don't, I'm usually quite serious because if I'm not, I'm going to fuck up. I fuck up anyways, and that's fine. I'm not, I'm not worried about that, but it's more, I don't want to bring everybody else down. <laughs> so if I can do it on my own, that's fine. So I don't usually, um, I'm not uh, adept enough to be able to just sit back, relax and go do my thing. Um, so I always, when I hear somebody so at ease with what they're doing, it, it makes me very excited. It's very, it's very cool to hear that. Yeah, and, and the and, physical engagement is another interesting thing. And I'm thinking specifically of like Thelonious Monk has like such an interesting like um I'm sure you've seen like the videos, uh you know, like the films of him like playing and his his like, you know, his like yeah. way he's like moving and the way he like has his his leg, his foot is down here, like giant <laughs> It's so bizarre. And so this makes me think of the difference of this was another question that I wanted to ask you, is like the difference between say doing a show um with Signasonic's flame where it's like you're 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 mainly you know you're doing you know some stuff here technical things up here and there's devices that are creating the sound and the difference between that and like playing the drums where you're like physically your physical your body has to be engaged in the rhythm or else you couldn't do it you have to be physically engaged in it what experientially what is the difference for you it's an interesting question. Um, I don't know that it is that different. Like I'll, I mean, a drummer, a drummer doesn't need to move much at all. If you, if you, especially jazz drummers, if you look, but any, any, even the metal, most of that flare is unnecessary. So if you were to take your kit really, really tight, you can almost just use your wrists. You don't really need. Oh, to sure. Yeah. And I'm not saying you have to like be like, you know, whirling your sticks around. I'm just saying you have, to, you have to be physically engaged you have to yeah. hold a stick in your hand and you have to hit something <laughs> in a certain time and rhythm or else yeah. it won't sound good. <laughs> I thought, yeah, no. And I know that too. Um, but yeah, it's the, it's what I find and it's, it's goofy because I feel like somehow I'm faking this, but I'm not because I'm not consciously thinking about it. I don't know if you've ever seen um, typo negative, but oh, yeah. uh, Josh Silver where he has a, keyboards with a huge hair like when he's just blah, and then the hair goes flying over um i just find myself even when i'm just doing my own thing and, and none of it is fast or heavy like you know that you would start headbanging to it or something but i do feel like i'm sinking my body into it even though it, the keys don't need extra weight you know i don't need to hammer on a, 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 a wire like a piano so i still feel like i'm going to move my body into it even though it's not to the same degree um, I guess with drums, it's just more of you have to do that or you don't get a sound <laughs> or it has to be some kind of impact. But I, I think I think any instrument, um, at least when I'm watching other musicians and stuff, you can always tell when when they're really into what they're doing because their whole body exudes that, you know, and, and something like martial arts or weapons forms and stuff, you can tell when someone's not fully there because the sword's drooping or they're getting punched in the head. But when you're, uh, when you, when you see a musician, if they're really tight, then you're not going to, you don't feel relaxed or comfortable watching that. But if you see someone who's just right into what they're doing, <clears throat> there's a Metallica video, uh, one of their movies, and they were talking to Kirk and they said, um, he says, "Oh, I want to use the silver guitar and the and the the record the the engineer's like, "Well, oh, why don't you get the green one? Is it is it the guitarist or the guitar that makes the sound?" And, and he turns to the camera and he goes, "Is there a difference?" <laughs> and, and I was like, "Oh, interesting. The guitarist and the guitar are one in this case." Uh, oh. so yeah, I thought that was kind of funny. That's deep. <laughs> of course, I've said that to musicians. They go, yes, there is a difference. And the musician walks away. I'm like, okay, <laughs> it's whatever. No, that's, that's very interesting. Um, and, and I, I, and I think about this a lot also, um, because I did, you know, I spent a lot of time with Asmodeus X, uh, for a while was, you know, for a while we had guitars and I played guitar in it. And then, um, our guitarist, um, Frank Faust died and then 
And then um, we just kind of like didn't do guitars for a while after that at all and just went totally electronic, right? And so all of my engagement in the music was um, was programming. Occasionally I'd do a live thing where you're hitting a synthesizer. But it's like you're saying, it's like I wasn't a keyboard player, right? So... So when I'd like tell like my family, you know, I'd go, you know, visit my family or whatever for the holidays, you know, timely, you know, Christmas is coming up. So all the musicians who listen to this can think of this. You're going home and, you know, your parents are going to say, so are you still doing the band? You still playing in a band? What do you do in the band? You know, Uncle Uncle Josh is going to like want to know. And and I'd be like, you know, and I'd say, well, and and then, you know, we have keyboards. And I do programming on keyboards and they would they don't understand what that means. So it's like, oh, so you play you play the keyboards. I'm like, well, my sense of um, truth, right. My sense of self-honesty is well, I can't really tell them that I play it because I don't really play it. And then it's just – I'm going through this, like, process in my mind of, like, well, I guess I'm really just a pretender, you know. <laughs> I guess I'm just really fake. <laughs> but you rock the theremin, though. So, I mean, come on. Uh, yeah, I did. I did rock the theremin, and that's a real thing. But you can't tell Uncle Joe about that at Christmas dinner because it's a whole story. And, you know, it's like you're going to lose him somewhere around, you know. Oh, and he was kidnapped by the Soviets and taken back and went to the gulag. But the, still RCA continued to, like, manufacture. And then Bob Moog, who invented the synthesizer, you know, it's like it's like way too much to explain that you're just waving your hands in the air and, and not touching anything and playing an instrument. So I, I went through a process. This is all to say I went through a process where eventually I was like, I had to go back and start playing the guitar, you know? And so as the Asmodeus X stuff that's coming out, that's, that's, uh, being produced now is like all, um, all acoustic like instruments and stuff like that, because I felt I needed, I felt like there was something, I felt a separation. You know what I'm saying? I felt like there was some kind of like separation between me and the music, right? Like I wasn't really, I was like, just like, I was like somehow removed from it, you know, like I wasn't, you know, engage with it to the appropriate degree. And I'm not saying no one is, right? I'm not saying no one ever is, but I, I couldn't, I didn't feel the engagement anymore with it at that level of it. So I had to like be doing something where I'm like, I'm making the sound all the way through the song, you know, I'm like gonna, you know, make a sound, you know, that <laughs> makes a song. <laughs> and now you have stories to tell around the table. Yes. Yeah. I, I have much better stories for Christmas dinner, but you know, the 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 tragic thing is like all my relatives are like dying now, so I, I'm not really gonna have anyone to like talk to. But you know, hey, I got the podcast. <laughs> so so let's talk about um, the connection between magic and music, and what does that mean for you? Hmm. Well, I'd like to be smart enough to talk about the. Kerjeef and talk about, you know, the, the, uh, the Aeneid and all that kind of stuff. But, um, I think it's, it comes down to creating. So if we look at black magic as representing uh, the black magician creating their subjective self, like being able to understand and, and bring that into being that comes through in a whole lot of different ways, but music art in general, but music, I think because it's so technically, you, there's so much very precise technical um, skill that you can develop and apply um, when you're dealing with octaves and when you're dealing with um, the different scales, the different modes. I mean, I think all of that, I think, is a real it's made it's almost it's almost like Pythagoras thought this through and said, here, here is your here is your tool that you can use. Um, so, I, I mean, I can see that in a general sense. I don't know how to apply that myself it's just more like i'm currently obsessed with alternating between uh d and, and a for some reason i'm sure there's a very good mathematical reason why those two things are in my brain but i don't know that well enough so i would just say that it is a way of understanding and creating something which is totally you there's only so many notes that you can use but yet we can come up with so many varieties of ways of expressing ourselves to ourselves and then to others. So yeah, I would just say that it's, it's a remarkable tool, but it's one that I don't know well enough to be able to pick apart in a very um, astute way. So you like A and D? Yeah, I don't know why. 
<laughs> just always. I like A and D. No, that's a, they're they're fine. No, I like them. <laughs> they're good. I like you know what I like right right now. I like A minor and C. Ooh. A minor and C. Okay. There's something real magical, and and this is probably because of the 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 guitar the guitar chord like fingering on it. They're like. I don't know. They're they're really close to each other. It's a real easy transition, and then if you throw in a G, throw in a G on that, yeah, that's like that's like half of the Death in June songs right there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah, no, you heard I think it. There, was, yeah. there was a Doors uh, video where um, I forget the keyboardist. I can't remember his name right now. Oh, so stupid. Anyway, Ray Manzarek. Yes. So he was playing in something and he went back to the guitarist and said, okay, well, I'm doing this. And he goes, that's great that you're playing that on a keyboard, but that doesn't work on a guitar. <laughs> I'm like, oh, poor guitarist. No, they're totally different. So, you know, uh, Paul Simon once famously said um, or wrote, I don't know. I don't know where this comes from, but um, that all all songwriters, right? So there's two, there's two, you got to, with musicians, there's, there's musicians, and some musicians are songwriters, and not all not all musicians are writers, right? Um, and that's cool. Some of the non-writer musicians are the best fucking musicians ever in the world, you know? Um, but uh, Paul Simon said that all songwriters, they start out with either... it's it, They're either string-based or else they're keyboard-based, right? I mean, guitar-based or piano. Guitar or piano. And once you like lock into that, you're pretty much that's it. You're and there's only a few exceptions to that, you know. You know, David Bowie could like play both of them. You know, he could songwrite from like both of them, and you know, maybe a few others. You know, um, but I mean, there's something like really significant about that, and I think that has to do with that. Those devices come back to the physicality of um, the stuff that you were talking about with you know, Pythagoras, Gurdjieff, the scales everything like that and the way it's like laid out and it's laid out in such a way that the body you know uh, an individual can work with it and 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 get where they need to go with it and there's like lots of other instruments that are stringed and 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 stuff like that but they don't lend themselves as well to that that writing like kind of process you know to where you can just see like i mean you just said it i like a and d right now you know mm -hmm. because you can see where that is and you can make your a and d and just and that's what jazz is. That's what that's what like these um, like Thelonious Monk and these musicians are. They're just finding one riff. Hey, let's do, let's do A D C. You know, and just like you know, and just like you know, just like play with it. You know, just we we just all play with it for a while. You know. Well, that I think there's a reason. I mean, Kenneth Grant, bless his soul. Uh, talks about jazz and at least early jazz. So that's sort of uh, discordant, uh, sort of uh, syncopated kind of music. And I think the one thing that jazz, and again, I'm fairly ignorant about the subject, but um, what I find interesting is that unlike classical music, which is you can explore classical music, but you have a lot of rules that you kind of have to stay within. Um, but in jazz is like, well, let's just go explore. Like we are gonna go figure out where mm -hmm. this goes. And I think that's remarkable. Um, you know, I'm not going to try to play anything like that, but just hearing it and knowing that that's, you know, that training, a lot of, a lot of jazz musicians have been, you know, trained throughout, you know, their, their life, but the, the way they apply it is uniquely their own. What about a Sun Ra? It's, so, yeah, I think I've got a little bit of most people, but I've never got into Sun Ra yet. Um, Who's the other? Oh, uh, an organist or uh, jazz organ is crazy too. I totally love that. Um, I love hearing that, but it, it's acquired taste. Um, Doctor, yeah, this is embarrassing. Anyway, forget it. It's not that important. <laughs> Wait, it's a doctor? <laughs> no, we want to know now. Everyone wants to know what? There's a doctor. Doctor. <laughs> Doctor oh. Love. Dr. Strangelove. Oh, great. We're back to Kiss. Dr. Feelgood. <laughs> Dr. Love. <laughs> Dr. Okay. Now you're going to make me look this up. All right. Hang on. Keep talking. Was he the uh, guitarist for Sun Ra? Or uh, no, uh, keyboard organist for Sun Ra? Yeah. 
Okay. So Sun Ra was all about, you know, space is the place. I think that's like yeah. his, his best song, space is the place. I mean, the guy what? was like, I mean, he was like a prophetic dude. No, I mean, his stage show is crazy. See, that's what I find. I keep. I have. I have yet to get a gig, but in my mind, I'm like, okay, what am I gonna do on stage? How is this gonna look? I'm like, how do you? How about you learn your songs first, and then worry about what it looks like? But they're the, they're part of the same thing. If you're gonna play live, you need to have some kind of imagery, whether it's no imagery and just dark, you know, darkness, which is fine, or or something which is engaging, like. Asmodeus X, um, I think is great. Like you see the videos like you guys obviously put effort into the imagery that you're using and how you come across. Thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Space is the place, man. Sun Ra. So the problem with Sun Ra is that he didn't, he didn't record. He, he did. There's no good recordings, right? It's like you got 20 musicians and he never had like a, a multi-track. I don't think there's any multi-track recordings that exist of it. Everything that was recorded was someone was in the room like holding a microphone with like 20 musicians going, you know, and it's like, you know, it, 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 it's, 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 so it's, it, it, it lacks the finesse you'd have from a multi-track recording. Um, and, you know, what I've heard is that he was like, you know, he's very like prophetic and like, you know, well, we're not going to do we don't need to fuck that. We don't need to do that. And and it's it's all about like the energy of the live performance. And, yeah, there's something to that. But as a result of that, they didn't create any durable media. So no one can really get in and appreciate the 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 finesse of it, you know, which you could do. I mean, you know, like the Beatles, um, Sergeant Peppers was recorded with two four track two four track mm. recorders and that's like that's so rudimentary and everything before that was like a four track or else a two track thing right um so it's like a, it just even with like once you go to like eight tracks i think there's some isn't there some doors or maybe there's a doors album that's like some the first like full like eight track thing but it's um it, it's like once you get to that it's like that expands things so much to to create like the the separation of the technicality of how the, all of the instruments go together, and I think that's honestly that's part of the magic of the '60s jazz, which is based on like quartets, yeah, right. Because there's jazz before that was like big band, you know, which is an incredible thing too. You know, we could talk about. I think Glenn Miller and all that stuff is like pretty extraordinary too. But it's like the four guys, you know. And everyone is a frequency, right? The bass is like, you know, this, you know, frequency and then the drums and either, you know, guitar or sax or whatever. It's all subtlety, which I find really, I mean, it's so funny. Like I love extremes, like, you know, something black metal, which is a wall of, well, hell, the stuff we create, wall of sound. Um, but when you listen to really good jazz, like a quartet or even a, a, um, a trio, like when you're listening to it, it's all subtle. The drummer is very subtle in what they're doing and the guitarist would be very subtle. And it's just, it's in the space in between, you know, and it's a very Lovecraftian thing. So it's those, yeah. it's the angles in between where, where the silence is, where it punctuates the song. So yeah, yeah. it's ridiculously awesome. <laughs> Well, Cygnus, uh, man, I got to thank you for like visiting us again. Are we going to listen to a song? Sure. Um, so this is a, a rough draft of a song that um, will be the opening track for the EP. EP should be out sometime in February, I think. So this is just me doing a rough draft of, of um, a, a dreadful malfunction. Okay. Uh, so it, all the components are there. It won't sound like this at the end, though, uh, once it's finished. Okay, so this is a, dread, a dreadful malfunction for Songs for a Cosmo. Before I spin this, I have to ask, yeah. do you have any advice for our listeners for how they can survive the dark times that lie before us? Don't give up on yourself. I mean, it sounds trite, but every single thing comes back to you and if you haven't figured that out yet get on it and this the, we've been talking about music there's a lot more going on behind talking about music and it all comes down to get your shit together and trust yourself and understand how you need to create your universe for the devil sends the beast forth with wrath for he knows the time is short <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah. 
All right. Keep uh, rocking it, Cygnus, Onyx, Flame, and this is a dreadful malfunction.